Welcome to Vossa, celebrating Pacific and Papua New Guinean voices and discussing our future. Vossa is a storytelling project driven by experts and creatives in the region with support from the World Bank in the Pacific and Papua New Guinea. Bulavinaka, my name is Arieta Rika and I am your host. Today we ask, how do Pacific Island cultures and traditions factor into perspectives on sexuality and gender as we understand them today? The Pacific is, like other regions, diverse in its laws and perspectives on the rights of LGBTQI people. And while acceptance is improving across the region, many LGBTQI Pacific Islanders still face violence, social stigma and discrimination. Ahead of the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biophobia on May 17, we're diving into the question of how far the Pacific has come in terms of LGBTQI rights and what needs to shift. To answer this, I speak with two incredible guests, Gigi Baxter and Suli Kwanga, who are actively involved in advocating for LGBTQI rights in the Pacific. Gigi is a trans woman who has long advocated for LGBTQI issues in Vanuatu. Gigi helps to run the country's first LGBTQI organization, V Pride Foundation. Founded in 2009, V Pride Foundation is a community-based group which was set up to help educate, advocate and mobilize LGBTQI individuals in Vanuatu. Sulik Wanga is a transgender feminist of indigenous Fijian descent who has advocated for LGBTQI rights in the Pacific region for over 15 years. Sulik is the founder, creative director and lifetime board member of the House of Chameleon. House of Chameleon is a social justice organisation devoted to ending discrimination and violence against transgender people through education and advocacy on national, regional and global issues facing transgender people. As always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Sulik and Gigi, thank you for speaking with me. Sulik, can you tell us about how you came to be an advocate in the LGBTQI community in the Pacific? I'm Sulik Anga. I'm an Indigenous uh, Fijian uh, transgender woman. I also identify as a Vakasa Leo Leo, which is a cultural um, term that we use in my tradition and culture as an Itoke, as an indigenous uh, person from the Pacific, um, being engaged in the LGBTIQ um, rights movements for the past 17 years. So for me, in the past, you know, 17 years, 35 years of my life, having been raised up in Suva, uh, capital of Fiji, and now recently moved here just temporarily because of the pandemic, it's really, you know, uh, been a lot of eye-opener for me, but really it's kind of, you know, made me realize to look at the issue of the Pacific Islanders from a different lens, from a different angle, now that I'm, a, you know, part of the Pacific diaspora queer community in the U.S. And can you tell us about the origins of the House of Chameleon? The House of Chameleon was really a grassroots social organizing uh, movement that was formed back in 2015 by a group of transgender women who felt the need to be able to, you know, really setting up a table for themselves. Because over the years, when we looked around the organizing in the Pacific, particularly when it comes to transgender 
uh, activism, transgender voice, and making sure that, um, you know, the voices of transgender community are at the table and then we are part of decision making, there was a huge gap in terms of just really navigating and finding the right kind of space to be able to have your voice heard, but really just to be recognized for your existence as transgender people who are really fighting for survival. So in 2015, um, really in 2012, there was ongoing conversations with a group of, you know, transgender women in Fiji who felt like, you know, instead of uh, demanding a seat at the table, it is time for us to create our own table and be part, you know, create a new system, a new revolution that uh, would prioritize our issues that we are able to not only excavate the narrative, but really take back the narratives of trans organizing in the Pacific, particularly in Fiji. So, that was the whole reason why we felt that there was a need to specifically look at the, um, you know, the conceptualization and the setting up of an organization that would specifically look at the issues of transgender women, but really connecting to the bigger, larger movement of a civil rights uh, movement in the Pacific with the women's movement and with the other, you know, labor rights movements, for instance, or now environmental movements. So, for us, it really gave us a platform to be able to take ownership, but really decide what the narrative should be like for transgender women, uh, particularly in Fiji. Creating your own table and reclaiming your narrative, you know, those are things that really resonate with me. And so I really appreciate the immense amount of work the House of Chameleon and others in the community are doing. Gigi, on that note, can you share the background of your work with the LGBTQI community? So I'm Gigi Baxter. I'm from Vanuatu. I'm the founder of the Pride Organization. I'm currently work under a UNDP program at One Small Back um, Theatre, which is the local, uh, the biggest local um, NGO in country. Yes, so I'm the founder of the Pride Organization, which is 100% translate reflected uh, in the board membership and the staff composition. And also our network includes Nivanatu transgender, men of sex with men, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender population, as well as sex workers. So members of our uh, office communities were completely isolated uh, prior to P-Pride uh, being established. We're very familiar with uh, the amazing One Small Bag here at Vossa, and we featured Joanne Doris, one of the founders, and also Helen Kilo, one of the actresses from their famous show Love Patrol, here on the show before. So moving on now, what are some of the biggest achievements of the LGBTQI community in the Pacific that you think are worth recognising? Hmm, that's an interesting question because, you know, if uh, for, for a lot of us, including Gigi and myself, who have been in the movement for the past, you know, uh, 17 years, almost 18 years now, uh, doing a stock take of the, the achievements of the LGBT community, particularly in terms of the movement that we are part of and that we've created in our own, um, you know, in our own ways, in our own communities, as well as in our own countries. 
it's it's really worth noting all of these achievements because there has been a lot of hard work that have uh, been done by a lot of these activists who have been doing this um, work uh, since the 90s and then uh, you know uh, uh, the, the the 20s, particularly in terms of the HIV response. And uh, if you look around in the Pacific. The 90s probably is uh, perhaps one of the, uh, the the decade when we started recognizing um, some sort of an organizing of the LGBT community. But really, when we look around, you know, the first achievements for LGBT organizing, we would talk about traditions and culture. They've always been organized in the past. And if you're looking at, you know, um, thousands of years ago in terms of the gender recognition, in terms of gender variant, uh, non-binary Pacific Islanders uh, communities, uh, this organizing is worth uh, worthy to be recognized as well in terms of its own organic way in which it has survived throughout these decades. Okay, so what about legislative and legal reforms? For us, any progress and achievements that have taken place in the Pacific in the past years has to do with legislative and legal reforms. And though we haven't reached the stage yet where we're completely, you know, advancing rights in terms of legislation and in terms of legal environment so that LGBT Pacific Islanders are able to enjoy the full enjoyment of their rights and freedoms under the law, but we have noted several um, you know, cases and uh, scenarios where countries in the Pacific have taken a bold step in terms of these legal reforms. And also, if we note around the Pacific in a lot of the Commonwealth countries, the constitution includes gender identity or being intersex as a prohibited ground of discrimination. And also important to note that Fiji and Nauru and Vanuatu have all decriminalized, decriminalized same-sex acts. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the work of the LGBT movement in terms of legislative and legal reform, you know, uh, should end there. But there's still a lot of work to be done. I think Salik mentioned most of the stuff in terms of the policies and the legislations in the region of how um, advancing or, you know, the current um, climate around LGBT movements uh, movement. Um, I'd like to add on to what Salik mentioned about, you know, um, ad- the local organizations in country. And I think in the past 10 years or before then, um, there weren't any organizations that are uplifted, especially in the North and the Pacific, but mainly in the, re- in the uh, countries such as Fiji, uh, Samoa and Tonga. But now, now in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of developments, a lot of um, movements, um, uh, LGBT movements that are advocating for, you know, rights of LGBT and also looking at law reforms. And that is a progress in the last 10 years. Um, and I think it's worth recognizing uh, that uh, achieve those achievements. Secondly, uh, one of the things that I'd like to recognize as well here is the uh, umbrella body of all the Pacific, of all the LGBT uh, organization in the region, the Pacific Sexual and Gender Diversity Network. It has come a long way. Uh, it, it started back in 2006, but now it's on a stage where um, just recently we're getting go funding from the New Zealand government, which is a big step and the organization is mobilizing, yeah, the LGBT um, 
organizations in the region. So uh, that is a good pro progress uh, so far. Quickly also wanted to recognize that um, regional LGBTI institutions in the Pacific, um, any kind of regional institutions, cannot exist on its own without the support of grassroots organizing and activism. This, uh, this is what I mean by, you know, country local activism like V Pride, like House of Chameleon, like the Fafafine Samoa Association or the Tetiari Association in the Cook Islands or the Leyte Association. And to, to me, there needs to be some sort of a recognition, you know, and appreciation that without the local and grassroots organizing, regional institutions would not be able to, you know, to, to, to be in a, a place where it needs to operate because it really is about, you know, recognizing and celebrating the years of activism of a lot of these people that, you know, some of them are not connected to regional institutions and they are organizing in their own organic way, raising funds, you know, uh, breaking barriers, making movement, protesting on the, the streets, you know, writing to their politicians, uh, lobbying with their parliamentarians and all of that. But really, without the efforts of all of these grassroots organizing community, we wouldn't have a thriving regional institutions to be able to have a much more regional coordination and partnership. Thank you both so much for these insights. You know, and Gigi, can I ask, what do you think still needs to be done to help end violence and intolerance towards LGBTQI communities in the Pacific? Yes. Thank you. I think for me, for, for, I'll, I'll speak specifically to Vanuatu context. Um, Fiji might have a different comment to this or any other Pacific region or country might have a different comment I mean, response to this. In terms of, you know, what we can do to uh, break or the intolerance towards LGBTIQ people is because we're in a society where is uphold, you know, the values of Christianity and culture. And myself, I remember one time in Sulik, we were abroad and um, we were talking about the work that we do these days in terms of, you know, advocating and ensuring, um, advocating for the rights of LGBT people and also addressing stigma and discrimination of towards LGBT people is no mistake because this must be our ancestors' wildest dreams. And I quote this from Sulik because it's something that really motivates me in the current work that I do. So there is no mistake for what the current work that we do uh, in terms of advocating for you know, LGBT or sensitizing the community um, to understand more about sexual orientation and gender identity. What we've noticed that is that, you know, in the normal living for us in Vanuatu, respectively, in the way that we live in our country, in our community, people don't really talk about it or make um, comments to it until we started addressing the issue. In the past, like 10 years ago, I would say it's not safe walking around Port Vila. Uh, sorry, not 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but through some works through one small back, and um, and this is where Fee Pride was born. I was using plays and movie theater to address um, stigma discrimination. Although people see it as an amusement, but they kind of create talk behind closed doors. 
to further to help them understand more about you know sexual orientation gender identity yeah absolutely i just wanted to quickly share um one of the groundbreaking research that i was a part of and uh that was led by the house of chameleon this was launched in 2019 it was called the um every breath a trans woman Woman takes is an act of revolution, fighting for intersectional justice in Fiji. Um, the research found that in 2019, when we wrapped up the research, um, we found that 70% of transgender women who were surveyed in this research experienced some form of violence, whether physical, sexual, or psychological, upon the disclosure of their status as transgenders. And relatives were the most common perpetrators of violence upon transgender women at the time of the disclosure of their gender identity. Now, the research further states that uh, 63% of transgender women have experienced physical violence, 36.8% of transgender women have experienced sexual violence, and 73.7% of transgender women have experienced emotional or verbal abuse since coming out as transgender. Now, this violence is most commonly perpetrated by members of the community. Um, despite experiencing these rates of violence, over two-thirds of transgender women that we surveyed did not report such events to the police or utilize the formal justice system to, to prosecute perpetrators. So this was mostly due to the fear of facing further discrimination from police, for instance, or uh, for example, small percentages of trans women who have reported cases, half of them have not received justice. And over one third of trans women have reported that they would need some form of assistance, such as more education on their legal rights prior to being able to report their cases to the police. So one of the key things that we also found in terms of the research is that a lot of these uh, transgender women in our community, they prefer accessing the informal um, uh, justice system in terms of their close friends or in terms of, you know, uh, um, their support group or whatever support group that they have in their communities. Wow, those are really harrowing statistics. So what does that mean for how you work with communities? So for us, it was important that, in you know, before we start... Uh, you know, um, working towards uh, changing institution and uh, the system in terms of reform, we need to be able to start empowering our own communities because some of us and some of our communities are the first reference point for any kind of a referral or for any kind of uh, a talanoa in terms of violence being experienced by their peers. So for us, it's important to be able to uh, educate, but also empower our own community to be in a better capacity and position to refer our communities to institutions and places where they would get um, adequate and efficient kind of service that are specific to our needs and issues as transgender women. When we're talking about violence and harassment, we need to be uh, you know, uh, working with our own communities, grassroots leaders, uh, to be able to train them to do evidence-based programming and interventions in their own community, to be able to come up with the data and information so that we are able, you know, we are better informed about strategies that we can work towards addressing this epidemic of violence. 
But what needs to be done now in terms of the the whole you know conversation and dialogue is to really looking at the institution and systemic reform. And we're talking about the states, we're talking about the police, we're talking about the legislature, we're talking about the judiciary. You know, we can't be talking about reform in a system that doesn't work. What we need to do is to challenge and change the system. The current system of violence against transgender and queer community in the Pacific is not really working. So we need to have this institutional and systemic reform in order for us to be able to, 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 to wake up you know, every day and say, okay, yeah, now I can breathe knowing that there is a justice system that can look out for me, that can stand up for my rights, and that we're working towards this reform and that people will be able to live their lives free from violence, free from discrimination, and uh, things like that. This is so fascinating to me, and I'm sure to our listeners as well. So I'm interested, how do tradition and cultural factors influence the work and experiences of the LGBTQI community? I just remembered having a conversation with Gigi. I'm not sure whether it was in Fiji or somewhere. We always meet up everywhere. I remembered, I think it was in Vanuatu when I came over as part of the human rights um, LGBT workshop that we did, Gigi. Was that right? We were in Santo, I think. And you shared with me about Omo, um, one of the goddess. It yes. was part of your folklore, your tradition. I forgot the yes. name. Gigi. Yeah, that, that's right. You know, first of all, I love the name. It's 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 really you know sacred. And um, when you told me, I just had goosebumps because you know, to me, the conversation about acceptance and uh, you know, um, really uh, inclusiveness is not a new thing. You know, it has always been part of our cultures and our upbringing in the Pacific. And part of that has been shared by our elders and our ancestors, whether through oral history, through our dance, or through our grandmothers, our bumbu, our tutu, growing up, hearing about all of this. And then when I sat with Gigi, the, I remember this was in Sento, and you were talking about it. I was like, wow, how come we don't, you know, um, have this conversation often? Because too often we're talking about... <clears throat> Um, traditions and customs from another country, really, that we don't uh, identify with. But really, you know, something to celebrate about how other countries are able to excavate that part of their narrative and to be able to celebrate that. But when I went to Papua New Guinea and when I went to Vanuatu, I, I started hearing all these stories and I was like, wow, that's amazing. I agree with you, Salik, in terms of, you know, the inclusion that is already in our customs and traditions, but it's not, but it's um, not viewed in our current, in, in modern times or in this current time. Yes, I think one of the things that I'd like to acknowledge or recognize is, you know, if we talk about human rights in terms and um, in regards to culture, human rights have already been existed back in the days. And that is something that it resonates with me because, you know, there are certain practices that we do in terms of respect. Um, that is rec- that is human rights. Like that is something that you respect 
towards another person. But today, because of the technicality and people say, assume that um, human rights is uh, it's a foreign concept, but really it isn't. And I'd often like to um, say that, um, you know, for us in Vanuatu, uh, because we have a lot of languages, we do not have uh, a specific term, although we believe that there's some terms used in specific uh, in describing a person, uh, an LGBT person, uh, were eradicated by the colonizers or the first people who came to shore in the region, in, 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 our, in our islands back in the days. And so we think that in fact, we believe that um, these terms nowadays that is being used is a term that to discriminate. For example, one part of the island in, in, a, in, in the central province in Vanuatu, um, Shefa province, um, a person that you describe who is in the manner of a woman is called a layfaf. But that is a term that, you know, describes that person, but not in, like in the day, back in the day, it's a term that, you know, the describe a person. But nowadays, it's like looking at that person and saying he or she is a pufta. Uh, and that is something that we feel like, we you know, we want to reclaim those identities. Thank you both so much. Sulik, so looking to the future, what would you like to see happen in the next two to three years for the LGBTQI community? There's a lot of things that, you know, um, we wanted to see happen in the next two to three years while being in a place, you know, where we're still trying to recover from this hungover of a pandemic, uh, COVID-19. But I'm very, very hopeful because I know that the movement is not resting, even though there's a lot of lockdowns and uh, you know things might seem kind of stagnant at this point, but I know there's people still moving, they're still talking, they're still lobbying in whatever way that they're doing. So there's a little bit of hope in me that the next two to three years in the Pacific is going to be better, but I'm also very much inspired at the same time by the ongoing work by a lot of people who are continuing the work, you know, in, in the Pacific. So, yes. I think one of the things that, um, the thing that I'd like to share is, um, you know, where we are today is already a proven testament of the progress and the improvement of the lives of the work of us, you know, LGBTIQ people in the region, in the Pacific. Because you know we are presented, or um, yeah, are presented in spaces where we wanted our voices to be heard. When the issue arises, we do the work. We shout. We you know part. We we develop partnerships. But then again, um, you know we need to strengthen our um, people. Uh, you know strengthen the works that we do, and also uh, you know do more. Uh, more and develop partnerships. So that's something that I see, you know, for us, Vanuatu specifically, um, we are in that approach at the moment, in the, or in the direction where we are going to lobby. We're doing an advocacy event in the next in the next month, where we have government and international NGOs, diplomatic missions that will be present for us to, you know, address. You know LGBT issues, as well as launching some of the work that we've been doing in the past year. 
And of course, I'd like to acknowledge her uh, and also recognize her for her own way of advocacy. She has been very powerful in motivating uh, transgender women in the region. Thank you. I just wanted to say, you know, the work of the movement over the past years cannot be done by, you know, singular institutions or individuals. It's really the effort of the collective. And that's why it's always you know, powerful when we have a collective uh, vision, when we have collective movements who are all part of the bigger movement. So really, Gigi, it's, you know, um, activists like yourself as well. I always tell myself, I always remind myself in whatever capacity that I see myself in the future, whether I decide to take a one or two year break from the movement to look after myself and my mental health. And I always remind myself that I stand on the shoulders of inspiring and incredible transgender women and queer activists as well, like herself and many others who are in the Pacific. It's about recognizing the humanity in us. It's about recognizing that, yeah, we do exist and that we have thrived and we feel accepted in these spaces. So, you know, for me, when we're talking about the decolonizing of narratives, you know, excavating our um, histories and our her stories of, you know, diverse um, gender identity and, you know, uh, sexual orientation in the Pacific. It's really about um, recognizing the power that we have been able to use art as a form of gender expression, but really as a place of kind of refuge. Yeah, we exist. And to be able to continue to push for, you know, the visibility of our communities through the art is amazing. And I know that there are a lot of other expressive uh, art forms and platforms that are people continuing to, you know, are used to be able to express themselves. And uh, for me, you know, we need to continue that to invest in a lot of these um, uh, platforms so that people are able to live their lives authentically, unapologetically, creatively, you know, in their highest self, in their highest form, in their truest self. And for me, that's always been, uh, you know, my part of, um, uh, I feel as part of my responsibility. In fact, you know, that's why where I want to move towards in the next uh, future, you know, moving on from a more, you know, kind of protest on the street, lobbying with parliamentarians. I feel like now I'm in a position where I want to focus all of my energy towards the art in the future. What a beautiful note to finish on. Thank you both for your time and for your bravery in sharing your insights and experiences today. I really appreciate it. Vinaka, vinaka bakalevu.